I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, March 6th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Lego admits it made too many bricks. The company, according to the BBC and other sites, said sales and profits have fallen for the first time in 13 years blaming the weak performance on having to sell off excess brick supply. What is the market for that? I'll call up the guys at Duplo and then, yeah, I'm out of luck. Also, they're not the same size bricks. So here is the stat that I thought was interesting. Lego, and I'm going to try not to say Legos, Lego sells $75 billion bricks annually. And I was wondering, are there more Lego bricks sold annually in the world or bricks bricks or what we might call uh, solid bricks, clay bricks. So I wanted to, I wanted to investigate. I went to Reddit. They had an estimate. I saw the math the guy was doing, but it seemed a little bit wild. And am I really going to credit a site that gave us the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Conspiracy? When you talk bricks, you want solidity. So I found the official website, brick.com. Well, brick.com is actually Acme Brick, but I found this site of the National Authority on Clay Brick Construction, the Brick Industry Association. What a website. All about bricks. Sentences like clay pavers are another type of clay brick that have been used in the United States since colonial times. Clay pavers. Isn't he the backup quarterback on Arkansas? Clay pavers. Also, stats like 80% of bricks sold is for residential construction. And I like this sense. It's not surprising that America's homeowners have an overwhelming awareness of brick. It is true. Talk whatever you want to talk about branding or brand extension. We do know brick. And really, did the guy who invent brick, did he say, we'll call it brick. We'll make it red. It'll stand out. So maybe it's just good lead time. But we do. Uh, there is 100% consumer awareness of brick, isn't there? And they, and they underline this point by saying this. Consider this. In almost every state of the union, there are streets or squares with the name brick, brickyard, or brick kiln. And in fact, there was once a song named Brick House. But what about my question? Are there more Lego bricks or brick bricks in the world? I saw a reference to the $7.1 billion U.S. brick and block industry, brick and block. But I could not separate brick from block. So I don't know if it's six brick, one block, five brick for every two block. There's the problem with brick and block. I tried to delve deep into a brick block TikTok. It did not work. Then I went to a website, Acme Brick, which was bought by Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. The guy's a genius. He knows. Everyone knows about brick. And on the website, Acme Brick said that its shipments in 2001 exceeded a billion bricks. So I figured, oh, if they sold a billion bricks in 2001, they must sell more now. But no, I looked at home starts and I found that actually there are more homes being built in 2001. And as we know already, most of the bricks sold are for residential construction. So basically, I did a little back of the envelope math or sketched into the brick math. And Acme is not most of the market, but it is the biggest uh, It is the biggest player in the market. And let's say there are 5 billion bricks made in the United States. 
The United States is one twentieth the world's population. So you could multiply the five billion by twenty and get a hundred billion, which means more actual bricks than Lego bricks. But I don't think so. Because even though the United States is only one twentieth the world's population, just in terms of how much building they do and how much building we do with bricks, it's gotta be a disproportionate to our population percent. So I am going to say, and I don't have the exact figure, and if you have a better indication, you could tell me. But I am going to say there are more Lego bricks made in the world than brick bricks, but it's actually kind of close. Also, Lego is making too many bricks, whereas brick bricks, not to mention brick blocks, they're doing great. On the show today, I name winners and losers in the spiel. But first, you probably saw the Oscars a couple nights ago. Well, we had an Oscar winner on the show. He was the guy who directed Icarus. And we also had an Oscar almost winner. The guy who directed Abacus, he was nominated. I'm going to say he came in second. We don't know. But I'm going to say Steve James came in second. It's a really good documentary. Here's that conversation. When the financial crisis hit, the phrase too big to fail was in the news a lot. And it was the idea that we have these behemoth financial institutions that have done wrong, but really, what can we do to punish them? The answer is nothing. That's in too big to fail. The other side of that coin is small enough to jail. And that's the subtitle of a film about Abacus, which is a small Chinatown bank that was, in fact, prosecuted. The story of that prosecution is told by documentary filmmaker Steve James. You can see it right now for free. How about that? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, PBS and government funding. Steve James is here. How are you? I'm great. What, what should listeners know about the case against Abacus, who they were and what they were charged with? As you said in your introduction, um, you know, Abacus is a small Chinatown community bank, the 2,651st largest bank in the United States, which nice. which doesn't make them tiny, yeah. but they are a long way from Bank of America. It's like half a dozen branch offices, yes. and they have millions of dollars of loans out there, but yeah, 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 yeah. family bank. Yeah. Back in 2012, the DA's office decided to prosecute Abacus, indict them for mortgage fraud, and connected it to the 2008 crisis. And what had happened is, is that Abacus had discovered some low-level fraud in their institution. They had fired the guy. They had initiated their own investigation to try to root out any other fraud. They found some. They rooted that out. They reported it to regulators. And then when the prosecution, when the DA's office got involved, they thought, oh, great, they're going to help us Make the bank sure, thought this, yeah. The bank thought yeah. they, they, they're going to help us make sure everything's on the up and up. And then they found out they were going to be the target of the indictment. And the DA's office claimed that they had orchestrated the fraud at the highest levels. And so they wanted to take them to trial. And the fact that they're the only bank charged in the wake of this crisis is very significant. The fact that they're small, the mere opposite, the fact that they have one of the lowest default rates in the country and that none of the loans under indictment failed, I don't know, made it an yeah. interesting story. How'd you find out about this story? Producer Mark Mitten has been friends with the family for a decade. Yeah. And he... The songs. The songs. Yeah. And he heard about the story and he noticed that no one was really covering it. I mean, the venerable New York Times covered the indictment and eventually the jury decision, which was three years apart, nothing in between. So he reached out to me as the trial was imminent and he said, I, this seems like an important story that no one's paying attention to. And I know the family... 
and here's the deal. And so I was intrigued enough to go to New York for a few days and film with the family. And based on that, I decided to do the film. Sort of a toe touch to see what you got there, to see if they'd be good characters? Well, that, but also to kind of see how would we tell the story as well. And yeah, it could be complex for a number of reasons. Yeah. Different culture, the opacity of the banking system. If there are good guys and bad guys, that's easy. This is a gray area, it seems. And the thing was, is that we found out right away that we weren't going to be able to be in the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, we weren't going to get the prosecution side. That came later. Uh, we weren't even going to get the defense lawyers to let us in on their deliberations, which kind of shocked me because defense lawyers traditionally are sort of starstruck. They want to be in yeah. movies, but Especially not these guys. When a documentary filmmaker comes along, <laughs> yeah. they're like, my people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it came down to what the songs were charged with, what seemed to be going on here, which yeah. was very profound and interesting. And then them as, as subjects. You said that there were two stories in the New York Times about it. I remember watching local news and they did the perp walk yes. with all these, uh, all the bank officials chained together, which is weird. You don't usually see this. And they were all Chinese people. And I remember thinking, I don't even see that when it's the mafia guys. They don't yeah. chain them together. Yeah. Right. It's usually one guy. It usually has way too many muscles. And you're like, you know, what? <laughs> What was uh, what was that guy doing? But I do remember reading a large New Yorker story, which was sympathetic to people who were felt they were ripped off by the bank customers. Those customers went to the DA to pursue their case. And, you know, coming into the documentary, I guess my idea was that this bank abacus got off for whatever reason. But there probably was some chicanery going on. Okay, well, let me address the New York New York article. The folks that went to the DA's office, which is what inst instigated the whole prosecution, was the aggrieved borrower in the incident involving this one loan officer, Ken Yu. Yes. And Vera Sung, who worked in the bank. The daughter of the daughter the of Thomas yeah, Sung, yeah. the founder. She actually sent that aggrieved borrower to the police because at the time when they discovered what Ken Yu was up to, they were concerned that they were working in league together and she did not want to do anything to further that. So she actually sent them to the police. Now, if the bank was orchestrating this kind of fraud, that's the last thing uh, you would do is send an agreed borrower to the police. Mm -hmm. But they did. Now, we didn't put this in the film, which I wish we had, is subsequently some months later or years later, probably, once they determined that she was actually a victim of Can You completely, yeah. they gave her earnest money back on her loan. That's what sent her to the police was what, what happens to my earnest money. Right. But at the time... So she was made whole. The supposed victim she was, was made, made whole. whole. Right. So, you know, that's what precipitated this whole thing. And then they brought Ken Yu in. And I think essentially what happened is, is that Ken Yu caught deer in the headlights. He was guilty. He'd been fired. He started talking about all the people who above him who were doing this right. and orchestrating this because it got him a plea deal. And prosecutors have a certain way of looking at the world. It's the cliche about when you have a hammer, you think everything's a nail. And they probably said to themselves, we got a low-level guy. We flip him and he gives up the people ahead of him. That's the playbook. Right. They were probably... Who knows? You talk about the, let's just call them culture misconnections between the DA's office and, and the bank. But you could also paint a picture where they were the DA, Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, and his underlings were acting as, you know, earnest proxies for the public interest. They thought they were. They thought this is what we do to help people. I think that they did believe there was guilt. But yeah. I think that Vance's decision to prosecute was clouded by ambition. 
and cultural insensitivity. Yes. I think- And the milieu and where uh, his constituents were in terms of being angry at too big to fail. Yes. Yeah. I'm the only prosecutor who prosecuted a bank in the wake of this terrible recession. Wait, that bank had nothing to do with the recession. It doesn't matter. He could have said that. Yeah, but he didn't say that. In fact, he brought the feds down from Washington, had them stand behind him when he read off his indictment and connected them directly (laughs) to it. Yes, yes. Prosecutors have tools, and some of the tools are to affect public opinion. And when you have a bad prosecution, it's not like they don't bring those tools to bear. They always bring those tools to bear. They just look more shameful in retrospect when it was a bad prosecution. Well, and the chain gang you mentioned, right? When we talked to both Polly Greenberg and Cyrus Vance about why they did that optics and and how insensitive that was, uh, Polly Greenberg tries to claim in the film that that wasn't the DA's office decision, that that was the decision of the court officers. Well, that is actually patently false. It is DA detectives leading them down the hallway. We looked into it. We didn't spell it out in the film, but we determined in all certitude that court officers have nothing to do with that decision. Do you think Cy Vance even knew about that decision? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't. But, you know, in the film, he kind of halfway apologizes for the insensitivity of it. I give him credit for that. But none of that happens without him being in the loop on it. And if he's not in the loop on it, then he's got a problem in his office. So we said a couple times, cultural insensitivity, at least. What are some examples of that? How is there, you know, if this were Citibank, I think the guys would be, and they were charged, I think the guys would have a, lo- a less rough time navigating the legal system. Well, yeah, if it, if it were Citibank, they'd still be in discovery, number yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there would be nothing would have happened by now. But Yeah. I mean, I think one of the journalists who covered this story in the film says that if it had been a black-owned bank and they had chained black employees together and paraded down the hallway, that that would have been looked at very differently. I think that for the Chinese and their history in this country, in their community, they looked at that as being incredibly racist. But then when you get into the trial itself, it's hard to know to what degree it was calculated versus just insensitive, right? But The prosecution's case rested very much on trying to create this impression that in Chinatown, there are nothing but fraudulent loan officers and mortgage borrowers that people are are all trying to, you know, skate by and work the system. That's a denigration, a constant denigration of Asian Americans, shifty and opaque in their dealings. And I think that there's even something to it that we call the bank abacus, but of course, its name is based on the Chinese characters and a jury that doesn't read Chinese characters, which was all the jury, right? No, no, there was yeah. there wasn't an Asian on the jury. Right, there wasn't an Asian on jury. You put up the name of the bank and the Chinese characters. It just seems far, and it seems like well, who knows what's going on there? Right, and and what the DA's office did in trying the case is they they definitely tried to conflate the fraud with questions about paying taxes. Yes, right, and it is true as the defense lawyer says in the film, it is true that in immigrant communities like this community where people are gaining a foothold in this country where they're mostly working in cash economy. And it's been historically true. It's not just true of the Chinese, is that the payment of taxes is something that is not fully done often. But as the defense lawyer says, if you want to try a tax case, then try a tax case. But it has nothing to do really with this case. And it's not the bank's responsibility 
to be the IRS. Yeah, yeah. And and I would say this has nothing to do with the prosecution, but that is the downside of not fully integrating uh, people into the American system that they don't pay taxes. I'm sure they would take the deal like, oh, we'll become the next Presbyterians. We'll pay our taxes, but also not be discriminated against and, right. you know, have, have all the protections of labor law and so forth. So yes, that is a constant story. So if listeners don't know, you produced Hoop Dreams. That was your first big documentary that I was aware of and maybe what you're most famous for. And in the documentary community, you know, you give lectures and people listen. Do you you look for stories that are based on an issue, like this issue of banking or this one story of the abacus? Do you look for people and characters as the primary vehicle for what makes a good story? It's the latter, people and characters for me. I don't set out, like, I didn't have it in mind, like, I'd love to do a film about the unequal application of justice in America. Mm-hmm. Where is that story? <laughs> Not at all. It was, I heard about the story from Mark. I was fascinated by it and fascinated by them as characters. We are telling this story from the point of view of the songs. We're not pretending to try to be completely objectively telling this story and who knows who these people are. Right, That's right, not right. the story we're telling. Because this is totally a character-driven film, even though it is obviously investigative and has yeah. the story of a trial in it. The and generations that, are really interesting. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so that's always been the case with me, is, is that I'm, I work more from the inside out. I'm more interested in intimate storytelling about people, and hopefully those stories, I find that those stories that engage me are ones that seem to have something larger to say. So if this story is Hoop Dreams, people understand basketball, and it's not too much of a heavy lift to explain to them the system of how, you know, young kids are recruited for private school or sneaker impresarios try to get their attention. But with banking, it's a little harder. So is that off-putting? <laughs> do you say it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a hurdle? Um, well, how do you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, somebody said, um, here's a story about a bank where the bank is the good guys. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I think in this case, the real challenge... The thing that kept me up at night, if you will, was how do we tell the story of this trial? It's a what's referred to derisively uh, out there in the legal community as a paper trial, which is, uh, you know, the equivalent of saying boring. Yeah. And so and this and and, and on the paper are numbers, which is not even worse. And this particular trial was so incredibly petty in terms of what was at stake and what was, you know, what the fraud that was happening. It wasn't like even with the big banks. With, you know, there were no Mexican drug cartels involved yeah. in this case. So it, that was the biggest challenge. But I think the, it, the fact that it just ultimately sort of ended up, in our view, being a kind of ludicrous prosecution, then when we went to tell the story of the trial, we tried to identify the key moments that really represented the prosecution's case and how the defense went about defending Abacus. Okay, now that's the story of Abacus. I want to f- figure out the story of the documentary. How does the partnership with Frontline work? When do they come into the process? Frontline came in after the trial, which took place over the course of about five months. And then in the immediate aftermath uh, is when Frontline and ITVS, which is the independent funding arm of public television, came in as partners. And that was really helpful to us in a number of ways. One is, is it really helped us ultimately to get Polly Greenberg and Cyrus Vance Jr. Because once you have the imprimatur of Frontline, they'll exactly. sit down for the interview. Yeah, I think that that I think that impressed them, and I think yeah. it also maybe put a little bit of fear in them. Yeah. Uh, at least Cyrus Vance Jr. that that you don't want to you know screw with Frontline so easily. 
Whereas you can screw with me as an independent <laughs> filmmaker with, without regard. Oscar nominations be damned. Yes. Yeah. Abacus is the new film, subtitle Small Enough to Jail. You can see it right now. You can go to abacusmovie.com to see it or go to the Frontline site. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Then is a podcast about technology, society, and power. Because without power, your technology won't really work. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Willa Remus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job. Will and April are going to have Ellen Powell on. She is the executive who sued her former VC firm for gender discrimination and now has become kind of a leader in uh, the field of feminism and tech. They're also talking about the FCC's decision on net neutrality. They spoke with law professor Tim Wu. He's senior net neutrality, coined the term. If then, new shows are out every Wednesday. Give a listen and subscribe. And now the spiel, winners and losers. So the winner is proper names, the, the whole concept of proper names. We've got a nor'easter bearing down on us, and it's being called Winter Storm Quinn. First, they start using the name nor'easter willy-nilly. It used to be something rare and specific. Blizzards, those happened a lot, but then everything started to become a nor'easter. Used to be a storm. The storm was maybe snowy, maybe had a lot of wind. Now we call it by a name. We have already seen huge impacts from winter storm Quinn, first beginning out across the west, then making its cross-country journey into the northern plains and upper Midwest, where we've seen a lot of 12-inch snow totals. Higher than that, though, places like Ellendale, North Dakota, picking up 19 inches. All right, so this nor'easter, or this winter storm, is Quinn. But as you heard on the Weather Channel, the one before that was Riley. Wait, Q is coming after R? Are we going in reverse alphabetical order with our winter storms? I know someone listening has an answer. I don't actually want an answer because the answer would say, well, actually, then after well, actually, it's going to be a sentence like, well, actually, when the Weather Channel started naming storms two years ago. So there's no one actually, if the actually depends on this conceit that the Weather Channel started naming storms. It doesn't matter. It's fake. It's ridiculous. I don't know. Maybe in my mind, Winter Storm Quinn and Winter Storm Riley passed each other in the Atlantic. They fell in love. And one said to the other, Riley said to Quinn, call me by your name. And there we have it. You call me Riley. I'll call you Quinn. And then somewhere on the sofa, Mother Nature is talking to Nor'easter Quinn. And Quinn's very upset. Maybe it's not Mother Nature. It's probably Father Time. And he's saying to his quite upset Quinn, who just got out of this relationship with the uh, tempestuous and blustery Riley. You had a beautiful friendship. Maybe it was more than a friendship. In my place, most parents would hope that the cyclonic air mass dies down or rotates clockwise instead of counterclockwise. But I am not such a parent. We rip out so much of the infrastructure of coastal Connecticut that we bankrupt New London County and have less to offer each time we start with something new. That's, that's my imagination. Oh, these named nor'easters are just the first step to naming everything, every bit of weather, every day. Winter Storm Quinn, Nor'easter Riley, Temperate and a Bit Breezy Penelope, Sweater Weather Angela, a Bit Nippy Yolanda. Basically, we have two types of weather. A horrible storm that gets a name and gets branded something like a bomb cyclone, which means we're all going to die, or a really nice day 
like an unseasonably warm February day, which means it's 70 degrees in February and it's global warming and we're all going to die. Luckily, I've checked the actuarial tables. We are all going to die. I have made my peace with that. Not making peace with things or life or federal subpoenas is Sam Nunberg. And therefore, if names are the winners, Sam Nunberg's the loser. Actually, he's not the loser. You know what's the loser? Toro Law School. That is the alma mater of Sam Nunberg. Man who not only doesn't seem like he has a law degree, seems like he's unfamiliar with the concept of law. Other notable alum of Toro Law School... Jimmy Kimmel's cousin, Sal. He's the first name who comes up. Sal is a gambling podcast on the Ringer Network. Hey, I like when people talk about gambling. I'm just pointing out that, strictly speaking, a lot of what cousin Sal is talking about is illegal in the state and municipality in which he lives. So there's Toro Law School for you. Also, other notable alum, Martin Tankleff. Interesting story. He was uh, falsely accused of murdering his parents. He got freed. He went. He earned a law degree at Toro. All this should really be inspiring. But when I Googled Toro Law School alum, I got Cousin Sal, Sam Numberg, and Martin Tanklef still depicted wearing his orange prison jumpsuit. So that's not great. Toro Law School's ranking on the U.S. News ranking of law schools is RNP, which is rank not published. They published 150 or so law schools, and then they lumped the rest in RNP. I did note that Toro's median LSAT score is 147, and no ranked law school in the top 150 has a lower median LSAT score than that. To be fair to Toro Law School, several state senators, New York state senators, and a U.S. congresswoman have graduated Toro. I actually like the congresswoman, Kathleen Rice. She's pretty good. So here's a fair, here's a fair critique of what I've just said. Am I denigrating a law school? What is my denigrating this law school by one or two uh, questionable alum? What good does that do in the world? Well, maybe it pushes Toro to raise admission standards, or perhaps it shames them a little bit, or perhaps it shames the New York State Bar into sanctioning Sam Numberg. I don't understand how lawyers can go on TV, laugh off a federal subpoena, and still stay lawyers without any blemishes on their record. Now, some people say maybe Numberg was drunk. Maybe he should not have been given a media outlet because he was comporting himself poorly. And if you know anything about television media, that's how they act. If you're behaving wrong, we will not put a camera on you, sir. Like when Joe Wilson yelled, you lie, we all should have looked away. Or when our president said, bing, 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 bong, bong, bing, 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 the bing, bing, bang, bang, boom. The networks should have treated this as a troubled act by a not well man. Like how they say they want to cut away from the car chase before the car crashes and everyone dies. Uh, We apologize to viewers. Playing the bing bang bongo does not adhere to the community standards of KATV or the Little Rock community. But of course there is a value to looking at and marveling at and scratching our heads over and watching agape at everything Sam Nunberg says. He is not the best that the Trump campaign or staff has to offer. But then again, I doubt he's the worst. In fact, he's just listed as rank not provided. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who wonders if there is more cherries or cherry-flavored Pez in the universe. Just senior producer Mary Wilson has been wondering if there are more Barbie dolls or actual women named Barbie or Barbara. It's not even close. There are 94 million Barbie dolls made last year. There aren't that many women made in the United States. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He wonders if there are more knock hockey sets in existence or critics knocking hockey. The gist. 
We're wondering if there are more hungry, hungry hippos or just hippos. Well, we have the answer. There are about 150,000 hippos in the world, and there's a lot more sets of hungry, hungry hippos. Of course, not a fair comparison. Every set of hungry, hungry hippos has four hippos, where if you want to count actual hippos, you just have to go, of course, one hippopotamus, two hippopotamus, three hippopotamus. Takes a long time. Upru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.